Hello everyone and welcome to a very special edition of Edelman Editions. This one brought to you in partnership with Edelman's Gwen Network. We're very excited to have a very special guest with us today, Shani Danda. She is a multi-award winning inclusion specialist and social entrepreneur who's been listed as one of the UK's most influential disabled people by the Shaw Trust and BBC's 100 Women list for 2020. As a keynote speaker and practitioner for inclusion across business, government, nonprofit, and wider society, Shani helps organizations break barriers and integrate inclusion into their business frameworks. As an influential woman in leadership, Shani has taken change into her own hands and founded numerous organizations to improve representation and challenge social inequality globally, including Diversability, the Asian Women Festival, and Asian Disability Network. Not to mention, she has also shared speaking stages with Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton. So welcome, Shani. We're very excited to have you today. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, um, besides all the things that I just mentioned, you have had an amazing career so far, um, and we're excited to, to hear about it. So I'm going to just jump straight in. You know, for those people who aren't as familiar with you and your background, you know, how did you get into disability advocacy? And tell us a little bit more about your story. Sure. So I have lived experience of disability. I was born with a very rare genetic condition. It's uh, more commonly known as brittle bone disease. And um, it, it only affects around one in 15,000 people in the UK. So I've had a lifelong experience of, um, you know, experiencing barriers, whether they're physical, cultural, social or attitudinal, as, as well as bias from people who perhaps have certain stigma against you know disabled people and um, I am South Asian and I was brought up in a really big South Asian community and disability faces an even further sense of stigma in my community so it was a real combination of different uh, experiences and also um, just just struggling to have equal opportunities and struggling to access things that non-disabled people could access quite easily is what really yeah. led me into this work of um, you know being a disability rights activist and a disability inclusion specialist. Amazing amazing and you mentioned there some of the barriers the limitations that society kind of places on you or continues to place on you and your perceptions of your disability and um, my mom also has a disability and she I remember growing up she's worked in disability advocacy her whole life and she has a little magnet that's still in the fridge that says don't diss my ability and I that always stuck with me and it kind of you know relates to what you've just said so you know can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like day to day in, in terms of those barriers and how you've worked to overcome them? Yeah, so with my condition, I have a short stature um, because the characteristics of my condition are that my bones break without any trauma. And by the age of 14, I had broken my legs six times. You know, there was never any accident or injury to the, for that to happen. It was, you know, perhaps standing up. Um, and I know that that sounds like a lot, but people with my condition actually break between three to 400 times in their life. So I'm very fortunate, actually, that I've only had six breaks. Uh, then I received you know, medical treatment surgeries. Um, so the quality of life that I have today is as a result of, of all of that um, treatment that I'm really, really grateful for. Um, and, and as a result of the condition, I, I have a short stature. So I'm about the height of a four-year-old. 
And what that means is that I live in a world that isn't designed for me. So really basic things like going into a shop to buy clothes. I can't just buy something and wear it straight away off the rail. I have to get it tailored first. And, you know, there are some people that say to me, well, can't you fit into kids' clothes? Um, And, you know, although I'm the height of a four-year-old, I don't have the bodily proportions (laughs) of a four-year-old. So, yeah, it is tough. And and I don't want to wear clothes with Minnie Mouse on and, (laughs) you know, low hearts and things like that. Um, So that's, you know, difficult. Even really mundane things like going to the supermarket is quite tough. Um, Finding accessible housing, public transport is something I find really tough as well. It's very inaccessible. So it's almost like you have to plan, you know, your, your life and, and how you move and where you live very methodically. Yeah, absolutely. You've talked a little bit about how you know you came into event planning and how that really set you up to become, you know, um, uh, or your, your disability set you up to very well to be in that kind of in that job. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I had really struggled to get a job at the age of 16. That's when I first wanted to enter the job market. And um, it had got to the point where I'd applied for over 100 jobs, um, you know, stating on my application that I have this condition, but it, you know, it doesn't affect my ability to do the job and I don't need any adjustments. And I was really shocked, you know, I had every intention to work, I wanted to work, I could work, I just didn't understand why people were not giving me that opportunity. So I took that one sentence off my covering letter and I got offered a job um, straight away. I got, you know, got an interview and, and a job subsequently because of that. So from that happening, I um, felt that I had to go to university because I felt if I had a qualification, like a degree, then I'd have a better chance of, you know, gaining meaningful employment as an adult. Yeah. Um, and I chose event management as that course. It was in, it was a new career at the time, and I, I only chose it because it was something that I enjoyed. I, in in my family, I'm always the one that organises the holidays, the get-togethers, the parties. <laughs> You're the planner. Yeah. Um, but what I didn't realise is I was actually choosing a subject uh, that was so well aligned with my skill set. Because I live in a world that isn't designed for me, I have to think outside of the box every day, you know, figuring out how I'm going to reach my kitchen cupboards to, yeah, clothing. Um, So it it was a really nice um, thing to happen. And, you know, even my managers were like, you're so good at your job. And one instance, I remember I had an awards event and the day before the venue called me because the kitchen had flooded. And I had to, you know, think of something pretty quick. Did I want to, like, change the venue or come up with a different solution? Anyway, I just got a different catering service in. And my manager was like, if that was anyone else, they would have really, you know, been really flustered. They would have been really stressed about that. And you just managed it, like, just like it was anything. And he's like, why? Why are you like this? Why are you? Why, why didn't this sort of, like, stress you out? I just sort of explained, like, my life has been pretty chaotic. I've lived with a very unpredictable condition. You know, it was almost like my my bones were made out of glass that broke at any point. I had no warning of that happening. 
So you kind of get used to chaos and keeping a cool and calm, collected um, demeanour in those situations. So, yeah, and I think it just speaks volumes as, you know, I know that in the UK alone there's over a million disabled people that can and want to work but aren't getting the opportunities. And we're an untapped pool of talent. Yeah, yeah. So we're being overlooked. Definitely. And I think, you know, there's the two sides to that, isn't it? It's they're they're employable and able to work. But also, um, you've talked pre- you know previously about the, the kind of untapped consumer market within the disability community as well. Um, so t- can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, you know, I think as as brand marketeers or comms people, you know, we want to look at it from both sides, both as bringing more people into our employee and our workforce, but um, but also, you know, looking at how the brands that we work with can be more inclusive. Sure. Um, I want to start with by explaining that globally, the disability market is bigger than the, than the size of China. It, it you know, disability touches 73% of global consumers. Wow. That, that includes disabled people themselves, but also the, their family and friends too, because we know how powerful uh, customer loyalty is and how powerful word of mouth and recommendation is. So if there's a disabled person and they're saying that this brand's brilliant, they're really meeting my needs, then those non-disabled family members and friends will also go and shop there to support that. Yeah. Um, and, and in the UK, we know that 22% of the population disabled and we have a, a, a spending power worth 274 billion pounds to the UK economy. But the fact that retailers, business and brands aren't tapping into this purely for a commercial reason, let alone moral, I think speaks volumes in in how overlooked we are as disabled consumers. And I also just want to make the point that um, when the physical world is inaccessible, the online world is equally as inaccessible as well because in the UK, retailers have lost £17 billion a year from having inaccessible websites. Wow. And just imagine, you know, if you're someone that lives with a condition or an impairment and the outside world is, you know, chaotic, it's inaccessible, even for somebody like me, um, you know, don't currently use any mobility aids, it's, it's still quite... Um, stressful going shopping physically and when online shopping first was introduced it really changed my life yeah and 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 our homes are our safe spaces there are refuges you know um even when that's inaccessible what what do you expect people to do means we can't live independently and there are basic things that we will all need to buy, such as food, clothing, uh, you know, we will need to pay our bills and utilities, for example. We need access in order to do those things, those basic everyday things. 
Definitely. That the topic of cost as well comes up, um, you know, when, and I just want to kind of pivot and give you a chance to talk about the, you know, kind of the, the discount card that you are working on currently for people with disabilities, because I love this idea. Um, but I don't think it's something that people necessarily think about, which is the added cost of living with a disability, right, or being a disabled person. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what you're trying to achieve with that? So. I don't think it's fair that disabled people have to pay more to live the same lives as others, but ultimately have less or no choice. And we know from research that for every £100 that a non-disabled person has is only equivalent to £68 for a disabled person. Now, these stats are pre-pandemic, and I wouldn't be surprised if they'd changed now. But on average, disabled people face many unavoidable extra costs due to living with a condition or an impairment. And this is £573 a month more. This is a lot of money to have to find every month after, after you've paid things like your mortgage or your rent, you've paid for your, you know, your bills, your food. And as I said, these are unavoidable. So let me help bring this to life. If somebody has an electric wheelchair, they may need to chair, charge their wheelchair every single night or at least every other night. So therefore, they're already going to have a higher energy bill. They don't have the choice to not charge their chair. And now, you know, in the UK, we're in a cost of living crisis um, that's affecting the general population. Uh, our energy bills have already increased by 50% and in a couple of months' time, we know that they're going to increase even further. So that's a triple whammy of increased costs for disabled people. But then let me add this insight. Disabled people are twice as likely to be unemployed. We have to apply for 60% more jobs. And we face disability pay gaps so wide that it's equivalent to working two months of the year for free. I don't know anybody who would voluntarily work two months of the year for free and yeah. it's this vicious cycle that keeps going around extra costs no job opportunities and then another step which really worries me because I know it's just getting worse is um, nearly half of everybody in the UK that lives in poverty is either disabled or they live with a disabled family member and wow. your way out of poverty is, is largely based on your capability to work but as we know, you know, many employers and many people have a big stigma against employing disabled people, which makes it this, yeah, which makes it difficult, but a really, a really vicious cycle that I didn't see anybody doing anything about. So I thought, well, hang on a minute, if students can get a discount just for being students, why can't disabled people? Because when I had the idea, I was a student at the time. Uh, so I've created an app um, that's going to help disabled people save money across everyday products and services, whether that's uh, groceries, food shopping, clothing, travel, um, because I want to help disabled people have the opportunity to have savings, to be able to have some sort of financial stability. I think that's a basic need that everybody is entitled to have. Yeah. I love that. It's such great work, um, and I'm excited to see it come to life. Um, 
with disabilities, I wanted to kind of take a step back and say, you know, something that you have shared previously, which you know, blows my mind is that I think people think about disability as something that you're born with. But um, I know you kind of shared about 70% of people with, uh, with a disability um, kind of acquire that disability between the ages of 16 and 65. And so I think that's something that really changes people's perception when they hear that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was a bit eye-opening, um, you know, and, and it kind of turns it on its head. And so I just wanted to kind of chat to you about that a little bit and, and to say, you know, how can we think about disability in a different way or through a different lens? Because, mm. um, you know, it, it could be something that you acquire. It could be something that you're born with. It's also something that can be temporary yeah. or also something that you live with for your whole life. So, um, you know, and also visible or invisible. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great question. Um, so I think... When we think about perceptions of disability, we we often think about people who are victims or perhaps, you know, in constant states of suffering. Um, and yeah, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I sat here and said I'm not in pain. I'm in pain every single day, but that doesn't mean that I equally can't live a joyous life. That That doesn't mean that my life can't be purposeful. That doesn't mean that I can't go after the dreams that I've got or, or, you know, fulfill the ambitions that I have. I, I, whether or not I decide to do that, I'll still have this pain anyway. Um, and if I'm being truthfully honest, I really believe that the perception of disability in the UK is that you're either viewed as a benefit cheat or you're viewed as that you want to be a Paralympian. These are really, really, really extreme narratives. You know, we're talking about 14 million people in the UK alone it's a very dangerous narrative to be fed like from from media because I want to see I want to see everyday representation and portrayal of disabled people and an accurate representation of our stories and because we don't have that we have this negative perception and negative stigmas of disability And the stat that really shocked me as someone that was born with my condition is that only 20% of people are born born with a condition or an impairment. So that means 80% of people, so 80% of 14 million people acquired their condition or impairment throughout their working life between the ages of 18 and 64. I think if that was a stat that was much more widely known and understood we would make very different decisions across society, in government, in business, in the way in which societies organised and systems are created. Because then we would be thinking of our future selves. Because then we wouldn't be thinking of disability as a them and us situation. It then helps to remind us that we could be part of this community at any point in our lives you know it could be an accident it could be an injury it could be pregnancy it could be it could be anything and you know I I refer to disability as the poorer sibling of um, the other diversity strands in the DNI conversation because disability is the largest minority group in the world but it's always the most lowest prioritized on anybody's DNI agenda it's not popular. I think it's difficult for people to sort of understand because 
any approaches that I've sort of seen to disability inclusion is always about medical medicalizing the person we need to get you a diagnosis we need to fix you yeah when in actual fact disability is a social construct because although I have this condition and I, I was born with it and I'll have it forever it doesn't disable me what disables me is living in an inaccessible world an inaccessible society and when I am met with bias so you know the example that I shared earlier where I struggled to get a job that was because those employers or whoever read my application had some sort of bias against employing a disabled person and I know that exists and I I really wish that I could sit here and say to you that was you know 15 years ago and that's not the case anymore but I can't say that that's still the case today and the fact that nothing's changed in all this time but our cost of living is going up what does that say that that means that disabled people are just going to fall into poverty and are dying as a result of this so something has to give here you know we can no longer we can no longer have people in society just not caring about this this is everybody's problem and the chances are that disability is something that will affect you whether it's directly or indirectly we have to care about this absolutely absolutely and and on that bias piece i think that's incredibly important especially for employers um so you know how do you think employers can help their teams or people that are hiring or recruiting overcome some of these conscious or unconscious biases especially towards the disability community I think that's a brilliant question. I think it's really important to understand the reality of living with a condition and an impairment and also how important work and having a job is for disabled people. I know that, you know, um, many of us work because we need money, of course, but there's always uh, there's always other aspects to working, like the social side of it, the feeling of being productive, the feeling of contributing to society. We can't forget that disabled people are the most socially isolated group of people in our society. And for some disabled people, their colleagues are the only social interaction that they might ever have. This means more to people than just money, which, by the way, we really need because of the extra costs. So the advice that I would give is to ensure that your... um, when you're thinking about writing the job description, you're making it as accessible as possible. Talk about, you know, flexibility. Talk about reasonable adjustments that you're able to offer. You know, you don't have to say, we offer 101 reasonable adjustments. Just talk about the fact that you will mention it in a job description will, will set you apart from so many other employers. It could be a really simple line saying, you know, if you've got any adjustment needs, just let us know and we'll do our best to make that happen for you. Something as simple and as friendly as that. Yeah. I also really advocate the guaranteed interview scheme. So we know that um, you know it's very hard for disabled people to not only get in work but stay in work. And the guaranteed interview scheme is something that guarantees disabled people an interview if they meet 60% of the minimum criteria of the role. And what mm-hmm. that does, it gives disabled people a different opportunity to get across their skill set apart from a written application and that can help ensure that you're giving disabled talent an equal opportunity um, to not only get a job but to 
to, to sell themselves essentially as well. And that can really mean the difference because depending on how accessible your um, your job process is, it can be really inaccessible to a lot of people. Yeah. Also talking about things like um, the policies that you have, you know, that's really attractive to me. Um, I would want to know, you know, things like, have you got a disability leave policy? Have you got a reasonable adjustment policy? What's your sickness, sickness and absence policy like? Um, also asking people if they need any adjustments throughout the whole process from being a candidate to coming into an interview. And then obviously, if they're successful, onboarding and being an employee. And don't just think that you ask it once and, it, and it's over. As we know, 80% of disabled people acquire their condition throughout the working life. So this yeah. is something, you know, that we need to continually remind people of and remind people that it's okay. They won't be treated differently if they they will acquire a condition or an impairment at work as well. Because I know, especially those people that live with non-visible conditions and impairments, they really struggle with that, um, with that question, you know, should I share this with my employer? Um, and I think, yeah. you know, I have a very visible condition. I don't have that choice. And in some respects, it makes it a little bit easier. By the way, I'm not trying to pit uh, visible and non-visible conditions against each other or anything like that. I'm just speaking from experience because I think it must be, it must be difficult to have to make that decision. Like for me, that decision's gone. I don't have to make it. Um, and of course, in some situations, that makes it harder. Um, so yeah, and, and I think that's why it's really important for employers to not only have good disability representation across all levels, including seniorship, senior positions, um, but to openly talk about disability, invite disabled people into your workplace if you perhaps don't have any or have any that you know of. And, and you know, I work with businesses and brands and I help them to become more inclusive. And one of the things that they will say to me is, we don't have any disabled people. And the one thing that I will say <laughs> to them is, you do, you just don't know about them. Yeah. Because, you know, and it's about creating that inclusive environment, right, where they feel yeah. comfortable to to share that, if not with everyone, at least with their line manager so that they yeah. can get the support that they need, right? And, and I, I love, I think I love your... Oh, sorry. I think that's no, important no, no. because you know, do you want your employees to be focusing on hiding their condition or do you want them to just focus on being productive and doing their role to the best of their ability? So from an employer's perspective, this is why it matters. This is why you need to like change your cultures. You need to create and build that trust uh, with your employees because if none of that's there, then employees will never share this information with you and you won't ever understand how to meet disabled employees needs to the best of your ability. I love that you've dropped the trust word because at Edelman that is, you know, that is our thing. Um, but it's totally, totally accurate. You know, it's the trust capital, right, with you, you and your teams and your managers um, that, that really helps, you know, create that culture of inclusivity, doesn't it? And I love what you said earlier um, in our session um, around, you know, making it as, as, you know, kind of day-to-day -day is asking someone about their dietary requirements and then asking about their accessibility requirements. So I would love to see that become, you know, <laughs> more regular. Yeah. I want to 
kind of take it back to um, the representation piece um, that you mentioned earlier. And I'm going to shout out your cameo in EastEnders. Um, but I know, you know, you've been doing quite a lot of broadcasts and, and different media, which has been fantastic. And I think, you know, I've seen a lot of conversation from people saying, you know, it's great to see someone of Southeast Asian descent um, or with a disability, um, you know, in, the, in that way. Um, you know, and I love it personally. Um, but what does that mean to you um, to be able to kind of role model um, that for others? Well, I grew up with very little disability representation, especially, you know, I didn't know anyone in my own community who who lived with a condition or an impairment. And I know my parents knew some other parents of, um, that had disabled children at the time, but I don't know why, but those parents like never brought their children out or never integrated them into the community. So it was really lonely. It was a very, um, it was a very lonely time. Even though I have siblings, I had loads of cousins, no one will ever fully truly understand the things that you go through unless it's somebody that's going you know, through a similar thing. And growing up when I did start seeing disability representation it was of my white British counterparts and I was so happy um, for them and for that representation but I still didn't really feel seen I still didn't really feel that you know I was being represented my community was getting visibility and this was really important to me because that you know that representation that little representation is what pe- is what people thought every per- every disabled person's life is like but you know i'm i'm south asian and disability faces an even further sense of stigma in my community so then it kind of you know struck me that even people in decision making uh, positions policy making decisions you know in government even the even the decisions that they're making is not taking into consideration, uh, you know, somebody like me and and my experience of of being a South Asian woman who experiences disability. So, I was uh, becoming a budding uh, disability activist in my <laughs> mid twenties, and it was it was purely because of this reason because nothing had changed in my community in the whole time I was born. And I thought, what about the next generation? They can't go through the same things that I did. It's it's not right. How can nothing have changed? Um, and that's how I got into the work that I'm doing now. And all it started with is just being really honest, sharing my stories and experiences. And I and people were interested in it. And the more that people were interested in it, the more opportunities I got. Um, but yeah, it's been a journey. Like. I've had my story also sensationalized uh, yeah. you know, when I was a little naive starting out. Now I know um, the things that I should be looking out for. There's a, you know, there's certain things that um, I will ask of people who want to feature me or share my story. And I, I ensure that I control that narrative because it's my story. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really it's really amazing to um, see the effect that my work is having. Where, like the other day, I, I attended the BAFTAs, uh, uh, the awards. I was a judge, 
I, I only attended, you know, I wasn't on stage, I, I wasn't a nominee or anything like that. And the feedback that I was getting from people from South Asian women were like, it's amazing to see you at the BAFTAs, you know, they were saying that they felt so represented. And I guess I never, you know, I never thought of it like in that way either. I, t- I take these things for granted. But just by me being there and, and being a visible member of, of all the communities that I am a member of, it speaks volumes and it, it, it means so much more than anyone can ever imagine to those people who have never had that representation or that visibility. Um, and something, something now that people quite often say to me is, Shani, you're everywhere. I see you everywhere. <laughs> Um, and I'm not, I'm not apologetic about that. And I'm, you know, I think that's a good thing. And I'm here to take up space. It's about time. And, and, you know, when I, when I wanted to do this work, nobody was stood there opening all the doors for me. I had to build my own table. I had to bring my own chair and squeeze it in between folk. And I had to, I had to tell people that they needed to hear me and my voice. I've worked hard for this. Um, so I'm going to continue taking up space and I'm going to continue helping others to find their voice too. I love that. I love that. And I really think that, you know, as, as PR people, as communicators, the images that we choose, the language that we use is so important in helping drive that forward. Um, so what would you, what would you say, is there anything that you wish that non-disabled people or people without a disability knew or would stop doing or could start doing um, to help, you know, be more inclusive? Sure. I think there's oh there's so many tips. I think um I think yeah, language is super super important. It can absolutely frame the way in which you are portrayed as an individual but also as a community. Um and and we as non-disabled people, uh, sorry, we as disabled people have lots of internalized ableism. So ableism is a belief that um typical abilities are more superior than uh, than disabled people essentially um, and some of us will have only ever been medicalized you know we learn about disability from non-disabled people usually medical professionals um, and we internalize that so we then believe that there is something wrong with us and we're the reason that we're experiencing disability when in actual fact it's it's the world and the way in which it's designed so that's why it's massively important that people in these roles and, um, you know, especially people in, in marketing, advertising, communication, that they get this right because it affects us too. Um, so not using uh, language that suggests that disabled people are victims, they're suffering with, just, just because somebody lives with a condition, it doesn't mean that their life is doom and gloom. In actual fact, people say to me that they wish they had my life. <laughs> and I find that so ironic because first when people said that to me, I used to think, what, you wish you were three foot ten and you wish that your life was just faced with so much inaccessibility. But what I realised, what I realised they meant was that they wished that they had the courage to live the life that they wanted to. Because I equally was faced with a big decision in my life. You know, was I going to let my condition define me negatively or was I going to define my condition and just live a life that I wanted to? Now, 
I would never go and say to somebody, I wish I had your, your husband and your kids, if, <laughs> if those are the things that I really wanted in life. <laughs> so it just goes to show that, you know, despite living with a condition or an impairment, it can still be beautiful. It can still be joyous. You can still do all the things that other people do. And, you know, I think there's often this misconception that disabled people don't have the same needs and desires as non-disabled people, which is absolutely not true. Um, and the, the last thing that I'd like to leave people with is that when you live with a condition or an impairment, whether you are born with it or whether you acquire it, it's just another feature of you. It's just another characteristic of you. So just like how I've got brown hair and brown eyes, just another characteristic like just how I've got this condition and like I've never known any different but for people that have acquired their condition of course that looks different for them they've gone on a different journey to me um but it's, it's really ironic that you know I'm the one that lives with my condition and the inaccessibility of the entire world but everybody else is awkward around disability it, it, there's so much irony I think I should write a book on it <laughs> I think it's, that's a really nice place to leave it. I think, you know, in, in terms of um, just being more mindful, right, about the experience of a, um, a disabled person and, and how we can think about the words, the language that we use, the, the actions that we can take as individuals, but also as employers or managers to make the world more inclusive and, and, and you know, um, bring the disability community together with us rather than trying to fit them into a society that, you know, wasn't designed for them originally. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to thank you for your time so much. I, I know that I love that you keep taking up space. I, I want to continue to see you take up space. So thank you for, for everything that you've been doing. Um, but I just wanted to see if there's something that you've been listening to, reading, or watching lately that you wanted to leave us with that you've been finding um, really inspirational. Yes, I would love to share um, a, uh, a book called Brown Girl Like Me. It's a manifesto for South Asian women and girls. And it's just one of the most amazing books I have ever, ever read. And I'm a big reader. Um, so whether you are a South Asian person or not, or whether you have South Asian women in your lives, I, I really recommend that book. It's amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I think everyone should go out and, get, and read that book. Um, really appreciate you being with us today um, and sharing all your insights. I know it's, our, our listeners are going to find it really helpful. Um, but yes, um, and if ever, anyone hasn't seen Shani in other places, please go and, and look her up and watch her TED Talk and, and see her in a million other different places. But thank you for your time today.